Welcome to episode 3 of the This Is Croydon podcast. The autumn season is just getting started and we'd love to share some of the fun we've had in the borough these past few months, as well as what you can expect to see in the next few weeks. Firstly, we caught up with hip-hop movement architects Berggang as they embarked on a dance production that brings together estranged generations in one fantastic, immersive dance performance. As part of This Is Croydon and the Dance Umbrella Festival, Berggang have collaborated with Dance Umbrella and local community participants to create the show Family Dysfunction. Here's Kendra and Simeon from Berggang to tell us more. Berggang is a movement architect company that specialises in film, theatre and anything dance. We use hip-hop as our platform and base for movement language, but we're very broad. We work in lots of different industries, spanning from commercial to theatre to onstage to circus, you name it, we do it. Today we are at Stanley Arts. This is our nest. This is where we are based and we are a resident company at Stanley Arts. So Family Dysfunction is a project that uh, Dance Umbrella approached us with uh, for Borough of Culture. Um, it's a really exciting project. It's got two uh, separate generations that we are bringing together to create a narrative and a hip-hop theatre night. So not just a short piece, but a whole theatre piece. You're invited to a family function, basically, and something happens at this family function. It's immersive, so you walk into the space, you have a seating, but you can also stand, you can move around. You're very much asked to be a part of the experience. Um, the generations are 18, uh, 13 to 18 year olds, and then we've got 55 plus. So these are all recruited from the community, um, local but also afar. Um, and we're bringing them together to tell the story of Sam and Jackie. And what is it like working with communities within a, like the context of performance? It's um, challenging, but in a good way. It has its own unique challenges, especially because of the age groups. Um, the difference between working with professional dancers and non-professional dancers um, can be uh, enough to play around with movement and quality wise when it comes to choreographing but also they can bring fresh and new ideas that we didn't even think of just because of some of the limitations which at the time might seem limited but actually makes us think in more unique ways um, so working with the, the youngsters especially those who haven't had any dance training seeing their efforts to just go for it and having that energy to be like all right cool so you can't do the hardest material but you can do material that's more unique for the show and more unique for yourself how do we work that into the concept how do we work that into the piece um, so working with that younger community from my side has been absolutely amazing the uh, the interesting part is that obviously we've stimulated them to tell their stories so because they're a community uh, cast it's very much influenced by their everyday stories so they're not approaching this of course it's a dance project it's a hip-hop theater project it is a show but ultimately we're really pulling from their experiences their um, cultures their stories um, and I think it's shaping the show in a way that we couldn't have predicted uh, and in terms of the storyline of the piece is that something that's been written by a writer is it something that's evolving with the ideas that are coming in from these people you're working with? So initially we came up with a, a rough outline of proof of concept of what we wanted to play around with and looking at the digital world, the analog world. And at one time we were also looking at the metaverse. Um, and we had these like uh, transforming worlds 
that really has shaped the different generations. And we kind of try to play around with how we would might to utilize them. And then through that and through the grinding and digging and looking at the two groups that we got ended up with, that's when we started to kind of paint a narrative together. And the more we played around with it, and especially obviously when we got the dancers, by that point, that's when we started to be like, all right, cool, we should base it on the relationship between this character, this character, and see, and see what we can, not just the differences that we can show, because those I feel like are very obvious, but actually to show the audience the similarities they have and how they come together. I feel like we're in a world at the moment that's so divided um, when it comes to sex, race, gender, everything else that we're trying to, everyone's trying to fit into a bubble and fit into a box. We wanted to have a show that actually goes, yeah, these two generations are far apart, but they have more in common than you think. And if we can get the best bit from the people before us and the best bit from the future, then that's how we can be united as one. So that was really important for us. I think um, Dance Umbrella kind of approached us with the tools. They said, okay, we want to do a project with the, knowing that we had worked with these two generations separately, um, not these same people, but sort of the age groups. Um, knowing that we had experience in both, but we've never worked with them together. And I think so Dance Umbrella came with the tools, with the performers and um, the, the different age groups, and then also that it would be a night and, and sort of the outline of it. But then we went in a studio for a few days and just brainstormed what this could be. And exactly how Simeon said, we picked out the things that were very prominent to us. And then how do we build a storyline and an experience for the evening through that. So the whole show is pretty much a brand new, it's a brand new show. It's never been done before. The story's never been told before. Um, so it's uh, definitely a bird gang baby, I'd say. How much does music play a part in this? Um, music is part of Bergang's DNA. Um, that's why we call ourselves um, artists first and foremost, because although we play with this movement language um, and we love the way that body shape and move throughout the space, music is our home. It's that drum beat you hear from being inside uh, your mother to being born and that, that first sound, it's so, it, it's so uh, deep and meaningful to us it was gonna play a massive part in this, this show, not just to show the different generations, but also to give the audience a different type of experience. So we know that visual as a visual effect, you'll see the dancers, you see them moving in space, and this show is very immersive, so the audience is gonna be kind of around us and in us, and the performers will move around them and, and shape them as you will, and there's, there's bits of it that, um, that we won't know until we get the audience there. But that sound element, that how we hear him, how Bergen picks up and listens to music was crucial um, to the development of the piece. And I think for this, it was really important who we had as our, our composer for the show. We've got uh, Max Cyrus on board, um, and he's very knowledgeable as well in the different eras of, dance, of um, music. Sorry. Um, so what is really interesting is we've sort of again asked the community the, the the performers to give us their favorite tracks for example um, music that sparks a memory for them and obviously in the two different generations there were completely different kinds of music and in this show we're using that information and bringing it to a world where both of them could live in and i think that's really really exciting um, so not only is the narrative about where these generations are similar but also different I guess it will be in the whole soundtrack, in the heartbeat of the show. Um, the music is going to be really key to 
not only the music but also the soundscape and the sort of feel you're going to have when you walk into the room, into the different scenes. So music is absolutely vital to this piece. Is it something that's just happened or has it been a challenge to sort of get these people to connect to music that they don't recognise? I don't believe it's been a challenge to get the communities to connect with music they don't recognise. For us it's more about how it moves you, so not so much about if the track's a, a well-known track or if the genre's a well-known genre, it's the, pro, the idea that Kendra said about going through this process allowed us to sometimes sit back and look and see how they react to it, which would then inform how we choreographed or what we might want to add into it or take away um, if we feel like it sucked up the energy and it matched a scene that we were trying to do, we should use that track because that same feeling that they're conveying that track did that to them. That combined with the choreography we want to do, we should use that. So it was a great way for us to see and it, to expose them to different soundscapes and different uh, noises and see how they react to it, like intuitively, I can't get my words out. Intuitively, thank you, Kendra, my words out. Um, but yeah, so I feel like that played a vital part, but I wouldn't say that anyone was resistant to it. I would say um, it's been a, something for the, especially the younger generation for them to adapt to. Who is this show for? Everybody. I mean, when do you have these two generations performing together? Um, yes, the middle generation isn't there, but the whole concept you will, you will feel and see is that also that generation in the middle is also very important for these two generations to connect. Yeah, so we wanted to remove um, this show from traditional set ways of how we normally consume theatre and for it to have a, I think, a bigger impact and a bigger feel. It was about the, and we call it, we've been saying this, about the experience and how we wanted the audience to consume this work and to, to give it the real effect and to have that feeling of what we're trying to convey was to us to have the performers dancing right next to you or dancing around you or dancing not too far away from you. And then also you as the audience member having that freedom to move around in a space and change your idea whether you want to be closer or if you want to remove yourself from a situation. I feel like that two-way relationship is important and really important to the work that we've been trying to make. Not only that, it also requires the performers to have a whole new approach to how they perform. You know, there's, gonna, there's a lot of work being done in terms of you're allowed to um, politely move into your space where you have to perform. You know, there's, it gives the, the, the performers a whole other challenge to make sure that they are moving around the audiences, but then also engaging the audiences. So I think it just gave a whole other layer to what performing is and how Again, the experience is the most important part, the whole process for these two communities, but then also for the audience. Do you have any future aspirations for this show? Absolutely. I mean, it, the thing is, it's so unique that the way it's going to happen here this time is going to be a one-time thing. Um, definitely the concept um, and the, the structure and the way to approach work is definitely going to be a way that we're going to be moving forward working um, uh, and I think it, it really sets a blueprint for these kind of experiences especially for Bergang we want you to feel what we do so I think definitely the way we're working the structure of the work the um, process is going to be something that's going to 
push uh, we're going to do again um, but again it's so personal to their stories as well that it's hard to just plaster it onto um, another company um, now we could recreate it with a professional company but again it would be a completely different um, show so I think for this specific show it's going to be a one-time thing but there will definitely be more in that direction and that sort of concept that we'll be moving forward with. So get your tickets, 21st of October, Family Dysfunction at Stanley Arts. Bergang will be there. Cool. This November, Zuko light up Stanley Arts with their signature blend of ensemble movement, projection, sound and light with their theatrical production, Night Shift. We spoke with co-directors Flo and Duffy. This interview is also available in video form with closed captions. See the link in the episode description. Hello, I'm Flo. I'm the artistic director for Zuko and I am co-directing Night Shift with Duffy. Hello, I'm uh, Duffy. <laughs> uh, hello, <laughs> thank you. Uh, and I'm co-directing um, a production here with Flo called Night Shift. And it is, we're kicking that off next month. Exciting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and what, what is Night Shift? What is it that you're making? So we have a writer called Paula, and they have written a play based on what happens in Croydon from six in the evening until two or three. <laughs> Yeah, four or five in the morning, yeah. So we're kind of exploring that period of time in Croydon, seeing a variety of characters. And we have a brilliant cast on board, a really good group that we're all excited to work with. Yeah, it's a 50-50 deaf and hearing company. So we've got, it's gonna have full uh, BSL integration and creative captioning, spoken English, some live music. Um, visual vernacular which maybe Duffy can explain uh, a bit more about and we're also working with Sim from Bird Gang who are another local dance company as our movement director so he's bringing that kind of uh, very like ensemble movement to the piece as well so it's gonna be super visual lots of video projection lots of on-stage lights lots of movement and playfulness yeah yeah absolutely um, as you mentioned, it has VV, visual vernacular. So the best way to describe that for those that don't know what it is, it's similar to mime, but in high definition. <laughs> so again, depending on the person's skill level, you know, they could push that up to 4K or 8K <laughs> and beyond. So traditionally mime, you know, you would walk, sort of mimic opening a door and what have you. But with VV, you've got specific details. You can explore the landscape, the texture of a building, um, you know, go into detail about appearances. It's hard to kind of condense the explanation, but it's, some, it's something that's come from the deaf community. Uh, and I'm really privileged to bring it to this production. So we have an amazing um, two specific uh, cast members, um, Ace Mabaz and Adam Bassett, who are both, you know, really high level VV artists. Uh, and we also have Sim, who's going to help us, you know, layer on top of that his movement <laughs> skills as well. Yeah, you're the hands man, and then Sim's the body. Yeah. Indeed, yes, yes. <laughs> just the hands, just the hands. 
Well, originally, visual vernacular, we're talking about way back. It would come up, say, in a deaf school where you get you know, kids talking to each other about a ghost story or something that happened recently. They would use sign language and throw, on, throw in elements of BV to maybe impress their friends or what have you. Then it would exist in deaf clubs. People are you know, using it to describe something that happened the day before, like a car crash. Oh, the wheels are suddenly, you know, they're skidded and smoke coming off. You know, finer details. And then it sort of found its way onto stage. And it was more about people using it within their monologues. And I would say in the last 30 or 40 years, it's become more mainstream. Um, you would have it mixed with dance, stand-up comedy, physical theatre. These people would adopt VV. You'd have visual vernacular battles, so almost the version of a rap battle, but in VV. So really it's opened up and you can find it in a number of genres. So it's, yeah, it exists in cool. many different places. How does Croydon come into the play? Well, it's, we did our research in Croydon. We originally were meant to do a week of nocturnal R&D back in 2020, and then you can imagine what happened there. Um, so we did do one, one overnight, um, a few of us, with the writer, um, this was long before we were kind of getting in a room. It's definitely got recognisable elements. The, the, the show starts in Purley on Duppas Hill um, and we walk through lots of different bits. So there's lots of scenes on his, in East Croydon Station um, and all the characters kind of come together around some quite iconic locations in Croydon. But I think we're keen that it's not like... We're not trying to be a carbon copy. We're not trying to make a perfect, um, exact image of Croydon in, in the play. We're giving ourselves licence to make something that's quite got a bit of magic or a bit of flexibility in it. Um, Is there anything you want to get across to audiences about this piece? It's got an amazing... Uh, the, one of the things I want audiences to know about this piece has got an amazing cast. Like We're just so lucky with the actors that... I mean, we saw some incredible people through our auditions, made our life very hard, so... This company is incredible. Some of them are really established artists coming in. I think it's a really ambitious show. And we're, like, transforming the main hall here at Stanley, where we're based, which is the first time we'll kind of do that for one of our main stage productions. So I think come and expect to see something very different, something that really shows Zuko's heart on our sleeve around our creative access practice. Uh, We bang on about it a lot in the Borough of Culture programme. We talk about access a lot. Hopefully this can be a really good example of being brave and inventive with access um, and the story I think feels really tangible and um, exciting. What about you? What, why do you think audiences should come? Well very much like what you've said um, I mean Croydon or London imagine what it looks like in two to three years time and I think one thing you brought up in a meeting, which is which is very true, is kind of increased awareness of deaf communities and sign language. So before you know, Rose was on Strictly Come Dancing. You know, I could notice a big difference um, after you know Rose had gone out there. I, I'd suddenly know communicating was much easier. Simple things like thank you and and please and what have you. And it's it's interesting the impact that one person could have. So. You know, let's see what's going to happen in the next two or three years when we see other big achievements by um, other deaf people in the public eye. So I think you know, 
we, what we can see is maybe ha having people in Croydon and London having a, a basic knowledge of sign language and hopefully that's what the future is going to look like. Yeah, we, we said we were like imagining a world where more people know sign than normal because a lot of plays have to like cope with the reality that lots of hearing people don't learn sign and say, oh, I wish I could learn, but they, they don't do it. In this play, we kind of need more of the characters to sign so that the scenes can be the best way possible. So we're kind of giving ourselves permission to use more sign than perhaps is really in the world at the moment. And we're hoping that we can show that to the audience, like this is possible. Yeah, you know, it becomes the norm, you know, yeah. signing is part of society, yeah. And again, it's, you know, comparing it to, uh, you know, people in a few years uh, yeah. from now, I'm really excited to explore that. But for now, you just have to tolerate my crap sign, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so Night Shift will be kicking off on the 16th to the 25th of November. So do grab your tickets as soon as possible. <laughs> yeah. This summer, Stanley Arts produced the first ever Carnival of Invention in the heart of South Norwood on Station Road. Producers Kay and Chrissy curated a day of innovation, performances and food. Supported by Historic England, this day of celebration brought everyone together. Hi, I'm Chrissy Jay. I am the associate producer for the Carnival of Invention, working with the wonderful Kay to make this day happen. So the Carnival of Invention is the culmination of a three-year Historic England project, which has been all about South Norwood, reimagining its, its own history with invention, taking inspiration from William Stanley, who... Um, designed and built and gifted Stanley Halls to this area um, so and today was really just an opportunity to get all of the families and community down have a, a great big celebration of the area give people their own opportunities to make things um, and yeah just all about community spirit really. So I'm in Jean Jeannie's Massive Hugs today I've been performing on the amazing stage and for the community, it's been wonderful. It's been great seeing so many people come together and enjoy themselves. I've been up to various things today at the Carnival Inventions. I saw Frank Chickens, who were amazing. And I managed to get some interesting sorrel juice, sorrel and ginger. There's been some really cool, innovative, like bee happy houses that have been made out of empty cartons with drunk action really enjoyed it. I've spoken to loads of locals, they're loving the vibe and the good weather. Hello, I'm Roger. I'm Lawrence. And what have you been doing here today? Silly ideas. <laughs> yeah, so we've been um, promoting uh, a Victorian engineer called William Armstrong. He was pioneer of, um, I don't know, alternative forms of, of energy. So he used famously um, hydro energy to generate power in his house. He's one of the first people to have electricity. He was the first person. He, had the first he was the first person to light his house with electricity. In the world. In the world. <laughs> in the world. There you go. Oh and yeah. he did it with. He didn't. He did it with water flowing from a, um, a lake at above his house to a river below his house, and he built a hydroelectric station to do it. And when was that? What, what's 
Victor, he was a bit one of the great Victorians. He also did things, big things that uh, he's known for that you can still see are like Tower Bridge. He invented that and made that. His rams are in there. Yeah, so, the, 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 the mechanisms the bridge, that, uh, all the, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's one of his. He also did the other big bridge in Newcastle, which is near where he was from, that spins around. And Sweet. and he built lots of lifts. And then the main thing really was his electricity and his passion for static electricity and DC electricity. But then what he did, he became one of the forerunners of the Royal Societies and in his inaugural speech he said got to stop using coal it's really bad and that was in the 1870s. Pioneer. Only we'd listened eh? I know right and today I saw some uh, I saw some, I see lemon I see potato what yeah. have you been doing with that? So we've been asking the, the children and the people um, of South Norwood to, to kind of get involved and engage um, and look at how you can create energy from alternative sources like potatoes, lemons and pineapples. And we've been um, challenging them because that's one of the things that Armstrong did. He set out challenges to people. So our kind of remit today has been challenging uh, the children and anybody that will come along and have a go at can you, can you light a light bulb from a potato or a lemon? And can you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and a pineapple. Yeah. And we've been doing Definitely. it with pineapple. <laughs> you can, yeah. You can make electricity with a pineapple, a lemon and a potato. Yeah. Um, and today there was go-kart racing. Were you involved in that at all? No. This, you, you won, didn't you, bud? <laughs> yeah, what do you want to say? I have no idea. No idea, eh? No idea. No idea. What well, you were part of what team? Team Crocs. Team Crocs. And, and Mummy pushed you right away down the road, didn't she? Yeah. How fast? Uh, fast enough to be the winner. Yeah. Fast enough to be the winner. But you had fun. You made the go kart. Decorated the go kart. Yeah. Raced the go kart. Yeah. Won with the go kart. Yeah. That a boy. It wasn't only South Norwood that saw renewed focus on heritage. The Phipson exhibition at the Museum of Croydon showed Croydon history in a new light. John Hickman and Carol Roberts talked us through it. So I'm here at the Croydon Clock Tower Museum um, and we're chatting about Evacuist... Evacustis. Evacustis, thank you John. Evacustis Phipson. Uh, this is John Hickman from the Croydon Natural History and Scientific Society and he's going to tell us a little bit about uh, Mr Phipson. Okay, so Evacustis Phipson was born in 1854 and he wandered the world setting up various colonies. He was the son of a brass bedstead maker and his family got brassed off with him and gave him money to go away, some £16,000 in the early 1880s. He rocked up in Croydon, certainly towards the very close of the 19th century, when major changes were taking place in Croydon. The ancient buildings of Croydon by the end of the 19th century had all but gone. And there, and there was concern in the early 20th century about more buildings going, especially by this chap here, John Ollis Pelton. Ollis Pelton was a, a grocer and wine merchant. He had premises on High Street. And, and he was also chair of the Libraries Committee, which included the Reference Library. The Reference Library had a collection of Croydon images, but they, none of them were colour. They were all black and white. Few aquatints, but largely black and white. And it was at a time when local history in Croydon was just beginning. This was the early days of local history studies and local studies in, in this area. Anyway, one day, Evercustis Phipson, this chap here, he turned up at the library and he said to um, the librarian, or a librarian, Beric Sayers, um, would, 
are you interested in this painting? Would you like to buy it? And Beric say, so I said, well, yeah, how much do you want for it? And Phipson said, well, half a crown. Actually, I think it was a little bit more, but that was it. Beric Sayers took this picture back to the library's committee and John Honest Pelton realised that this was the way in to getting colour pictures of the older and ancient and historic buildings of Croydon. And so essentially, um, Honest Pelton commissioned Phipson through Beric Sayers to go out and paint pictures. Amongst the iconic paintings that Phipson produced was this one of then the, the parish church of St John's, now the Minster. Um, here we've got the Southern Metropolitan Tramways offices. On the other side of the road we've got John May's Baking Powder Factory, uh, Stanton's Barbershop next door. Most of these houses, well, in fact all of the houses on this side have now gone. The church hall resides on that spot. But it's an idyllic picture taken in high summer of 1915 when one of the Surrey regiments was in Gallipoli. So it kind of belies here we've got peace and quiet when some men from Croydon were uh, suffering terribly in, in the Gallipoli Peninsula. We believe Phipson first came to Croydon in 1893, and that is because the Museum of Croydon has three images that depict buildings that were demolished in that year as part of the demolition of dilapidated buildings between the High Street, Crown Hill and Surrey Street. This one shows the what was called the ancient house that was at the top of Oak Alley in Croydon. Oak Alley led down to Surrey Street. And this view of it could only be taken once the building beside it has been demolished. From images in uh, Croydon archives, we believe that that was around June 1893, which would date this picture with the rubble in the foreground to July 1893. Okay, so we're doing a little tour of the exhibition with John Hickman here. Um, what, I, what I love about these pictures is not just they're a kind of window into the past accordion, but actually in terms of the quality of the picture themselves, they're rather beautiful. And they kind of really represent the detail of the kind of the signage of the shops and the kind of the, there's kind of a really beautiful sense of perspective and depth to this particular picture, which is Bell Hill from Surrey Street. I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about this one. It's part of Phipson's legacy to the, the Croydon community in terms of this particular picture because we have a, a survivor. When the clearance between High Street and Surrey Street was taking place in 1893, um, this didn't come down, this remains, and it's still there today. So if you stand in Surrey Street, you can look up Bell Hill and you will see these buildings. The Britannia Public House on this side, formerly the Black Lion, later the Britannia, um, now Mr Fox in Surrey Street, and over on the other side we have the Victory which became a cycle shop in the 1930s but interestingly is this building here number 13 Crown Hill and this is an interesting building because what appears to be bricks here is it falls the eye because they're not bricks they're mathematical tiles and these bricks were used in the construction of this building to try and avoid the brick tax of 1784 but if we look at that building if you go there today you would think that they were bricks Here's a picture of St Anselm Schools, uh, which is one of Carol Roberts' favourite pictures. Hello, yes, very much just one of my favourites. St Anselm School stood in Park Lane, roughly where Taberner House uh, was until recently. It was originally a uh, large residential building. By 1825, it became the Friends School when that moved to Croydon. Mm. Uh, remained so until 1879 when it left. But after being a residence once again, it became a school for the last years of its life. And at this time, St Anselm's School. 
Phipson uses um, particularly fine detail in this painting. Uh, even in the title, he includes late friend's school with old wall retained, typical of Phipson that he'd noticed these details of ancient buildings. The building came to a sad end. In 1940, a bomb fell nearby, didn't explode at the time, but um, exploded during detonation. And if you looked at this originally and thought this is Ruskin House, it isn't, but we do have an image of Ruskin House in the exhibition as well. Um, if you enjoyed the exhibition, then do come along and take this walking tour. It's a, 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 a map of Croydon with 13 Phipson images around the periphery, around the edge, and there's information about them on the back. So you can enjoy your piece of Phipson by, at your own speed, if you like. So there you go. Now, if Phipson was still around to crack out some paintings this autumn, he might be including some very unique creatures in the image. Vibrant giraffes have popped up around the town centre and will be sticking around until the 27th of October. These statues highlight trails that can be taken through central Croydon and have added a spot of colour to the streets. We caught up with some of the artists responsible. So you're one of the artists, Morgan, do you want to tell us a bit about yourself and your giraffe? Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure painting a giraffe, honestly. It is one of my spirit animals. I've got two giraffes tattooed on my back, coincidentally. But, um, yeah, my name's Morgan. I'm from Croydon. This is my old stomping ground. And Fairfield Hall's, like, uh, this is where I used to skateboard. This is where I learned, like, hip-hop and graphs. And uh, pretty much, if it wasn't for the graph and that culture, we wouldn't have the artwork that I created here. I mean, this is just uh, an absolute passion that I've stuck with. But, um freestyle and free flow pretty much but it's just been an honour to paint a giraffe and it, and and it's very colourful. <laughs> Is there a particular like aesthetic or inspiration against some of the designs on the front there? Uh, from uh, We did a, a road trip, we drove from London with a sound system, it was a humanitarian arts project in 2019 and uh, a lot of the, yeah, just the, the flavours, the, the culture and the colours from driving across West Africa but especially the, the, the batiks and the, the fabrics, a lot of that was like the ornate but I'd be honest with you, I don't plan too much about what I'm doing, I kind of just want it to flow through um, but as long as I mean, it comes from a good motion. I want it to go to a good motion. I feel good when I'm painting. I want someone to feel good when they see the painting. So it's just like, you know, there's, a, there's too much misery out there as it is. So just more colour, please. Anything that's going to brighten up someone's day. Is, that's, that's what I love doing. Do you know where it's going to go? Uh, I've just been told it's going to be outside the Leon house. But I was hoping it was going to go on a bar crawl. <laughs> uh, so my name's Frankie. I'm a Croydon native. Uh, I saw it was being advertised, one of my friends, Rich Simmons, did a giraffe months and months and months ago and I decided to apply with my doodle giraffe, his name's Kevin, uh, I named him after a giraffe that I met when I was in New Zealand, a baby giraffe, um, and decided to, um, yeah, create this sort of, I didn't really have too much of an idea, I sort of sketched out a rough idea and then all of this was sort of created uh, just from my mind, like, in the day basically whatever I was feeling on the day that's what I would draw I've got like representatives here of like members of my family funnily enough yeah did a seal for one of my sisters dinosaur house for my niece who loves dinosaurs and houses are you on there uh, no 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 this is my other niece she's a psycho she scratches and bites everyone she meets nice. um, but yeah just sort of creating from as much as I can getting as much on there it took a very long time about 80 hours 
um, like three, four layers of paint on each character, but I'm so happy with how it turned out and it's really special to create something for Croydon. It's beautiful. Had you done much stuff on 3D surfaces before? Was that your first 3D sculpture? Um, not really. I've done like quite a few sculptures. This is probably the biggest one that I've done, but I have drawn on my car previously. I did a thing called Junkyard Jam, where uh, this guy who owns a junkyard gets a bunch of street artists in. They paint all over the junk and then he smashes it up with an excavator or sets it on fire. So, yeah, I mean, um, yeah, first sort of big animal that I've done. Um, it was really good. Uh, but I think next time maybe I should do a bit more of a simpler design because, yeah, it took a really, really long time, but, yeah. Well, she's beautiful. Do you know where your draft's going? Uh, my draft's going in Central Shopping Centre. Uh, yeah, so in there somewhere. I don't know where about exactly, but I'm really excited to see it in its new home. That's all for episode three. Thanks for joining us, and be sure to check out our winter update for all things festive. Bye-bye.